Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. We come to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for that introduction. That was recorded at the most recent Australian STS graduate workshop. I'm David Border-Giles. I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Timothy Neal, a senior research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, who recorded that introduction with everybody. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with two anthropologists, a conversation about their work, about the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. This episode is one of those here's something I prepared earlier episodes. A few months ago, I had a brief trip through Aotearoa, New Zealand, in part to attend the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association Conference at University of Waikato. Check out episode 24 for more on that. While I was in Aotearoa, though, I dropped into Victoria University of Wellington to speak to Dr. Catherine Trundle and Dr. Eli Alanoff, both of whom are senior lecturers in the very excellent School of Social and Cultural Studies there. Catherine is the author of Americans in Tuscany, Charity, Compassion and Belonging, published by Bergen in 2014, and co-editor of Competing Responsibilities, The Ethics and Politics of Contemporary Life, published by Duke in 2017. Eli has published journal articles in all kinds of places, including the Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute and Political and Legal Anthropology Review, and is currently working on a book manuscript titled Architects of Citizenship, Making Politics in a Northeastern Thai City. So the conversation gets into Eli and Catherine's uh, respective interests. Uh, Eli's a political and environmental anthropologist with research projects centered in Thailand and Southeast Asia whereas Catherine would perhaps be better described as a medical anthropologist and her work is in Tuscany and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Both are members of the senior editorial collective of a relatively new journal called Commoning Ethnography, which they describe as an off-centre, annual, international, peer-engaged, open-access, online journal dedicated to examining, criticising and redrawing the boundaries of ethnographic research, teaching, knowledge and praxis. Uh, I had such... Such FOMO, and for those of you uh, listening who don't know what FOMO is, it's fear of missing out. Uh, I had such FOMO about uh, not being able to be there for this particular conversation. Uh, I was really keen on hearing about commenting ethnography, and I found the their description of the, the endeavour of the whole journal like just absolutely inspiring. And really, I think there's a kinship with what we're doing here, which I love. Yeah, it, it goes to this point of um, that we don't often in any discipline really have conversations about the logistics and infrastructure that sits behind Mm -hmm. making a discipline or remaking a discipline if we're thinking about a new journal. I think one of the things I found really interesting in this series was talking to somebody like Nico Besnier who was involved in, well he was the editor of uh, a big, you know, well-funded mainstream anthropology journal and talking to him about the amount of labor, correspondence, all of that stuff that goes into making this nice polished object that's you know a stalwart of the discipline and similarly um, last year going to the American Anthropological Association meeting and meeting all these other podcasters and getting a sense of like what is the what are what are the bits and scraps that we put together in order to make this thing happen and, and what are we trying to do with it so certainly yeah, I was uh, I was very keen to talk to Eli and Catherine um, about this adventure of theirs, the commoning ethnography, because uh, as they state in the interview, it's really uh, posed as an intervention in mm. what are uh, ongoing debates, uh, not just in anthropology, but particularly in anthropology, around the future of journal publication, around the sustainability of the current models and the kinds of um, institutional effects that it has mm-hmm. to have elite journals or you know the way in which it's it, it kind of disciplines us all uh, i really appreciated that you harkened back at the end of this episode you harkened back to a conversation we had with hugh gustison whose advice to younger anthropologists was don't ever let anybody tell you that it's not anthropology uh, and so i feel like we've had this conversation in different ways throughout the podcast series uh, about, you know, what is anthropology? 
And you bring up this question in the episode about what are the sort of opaque dynamics that are anthropology? You know, what are the networks of power that decide what gets published where uh, and how do you learn that? Which are things we don't necessarily get to talk about. You know, so they, they talk about the journal as commenting practice. It's in the practice of commenting, uh, they reveal all these different sort of complex questions about what is anthropology in, in practice and how might it be different. So I was thoroughly excited by that. Well, hopefully our listeners are also excited to hear this interview with Eli Alanoff and Catherine Trundle. Eli, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me here, or me joining you really, here in uh, your office uh, in Victoria University of Wellington in Aotearoa. So we like to start off these kinds of conversations by giving people an idea of how you entered this curious world of being an anthropologist uh, or an ethnographer in some people's cases. When did you think you became an anthropologist and, and how did you get there? Yeah, it's such a funny question. I think about um, how and whether to, you know, one can apply kind of a coherent narrative to one's journey because it's a lot more incoherent in my head how I got here than if I were to narrate it. But the kind of moment that I felt like, oh, this is like a really significant way of approaching the world and trying to kind of produce knowledge and to kind of understand the nature of things actually happened maybe, I was, I was sort of towards the tail end of a semester abroad, which is a kind of, I guess now a fairly common route into the discipline in a way. I'd been studying in Thailand for about um, five months, looking at development issues and working with like a, a range of um, communities involved in anti-development organizing. And rather than kind of move deeper into a kind of political scene at the end of that program, I ended up just going out into a rural zone and spending a couple of weeks harvesting rice with some farmers. And there's this kind of moment towards the end of that trip where we're, I was sitting around with a bunch of old men drinking beer and rice whiskey, and uh, they were debating about the price of rice, something about that. And I just started thinking about we had spent the whole five weeks debating globalization, and this was in the fall of 2001, so it was right in the aftermath of 9-11. We had watched that happen abroad, and it just sort of struck me that how the shifts in rice prices, and these guys were talking about it in their own terms, this was a way of understanding all of that from the ground up, and it was just a totally different way of approaching these massive questions that had sort of animate, seemed to animate really complicated debates about how the world was unfolding uh, around that time. And I just was sort of like, this is a really important way to produce knowledge about things. So this is a different way of thinking about the world. So I was like over a bowl of spicy chicken soup, I think, <laughs> somewhere in rural Thailand debating about rice prices with these guys that made me sort of think that this is, this is a way of generating knowledge that makes sense for this moment in history, I think, yeah. My uh, story is, is kind of a reaction against a couple of things from my childhood and growing up in New Zealand. I... Um, my father is a is a travel journalist, and he would always come back from stories, uh, kind of exotic tales from his travels in Asia and the Pacific, which initially I found really intriguing. But when I started to travel with him in my teens during these sort of trips, I became quite kind of dissatisfied with the disjuncture between the kind of complicated experience of being a tourist in a place and the the kind of need to create these kind of exotic tales for a kind of home consumption. And and seeing, we also saw some of the kind of firsthand complex effects of aid in the Pacific together that I was really unsettled by in terms of the kind of relationship that I began to see myself um, having with these countries living in New Zealand in its kind of colonial position in the Pacific. And then the other aspect of my childhood that was really important was uh, growing up in a very kind of new age hippie part of the country in Golden Bay where there was very kind of constant and quite egregious um, appropriation of indigenous ways, symbols um, and uh, philosophies and, and kind of religious iconography. And um, that was sort of often taken to be um, a kind of way to wisdom that as I um, kind of uh, got more and more sort of kind of familiar with it, I, I began to suspect that this was not actually a, a particularly productive way of kind of engaging. And and so there would be um, a lot of sort of events going on in my hometown where people would um, be 
sort of talking about uh, Aboriginal, for example, kind of mystical ways. And I felt like I knew nothing about Aboriginal peoples and what they thought of this kind of use of their of their culture. So, so I um, I started off, and I think in a in a sort of place of dissatisfaction with my kind of contact with um, other cultures. And I think that drove me at university to go somewhere deeper. And anthropology was the place where I landed where that was possible. Uh, just following up, is that part of how, how did you end up studying tourists? Or, or uh, I, it was, uh, is, that, is that the link? You, you, you already had those uh, kind of insights into the world of being somewhere, somewhere else, you know, living in another culture. I think I was really interested in, in what it meant to try and really be in a place. Um, so studying American women, l- largely American women, but uh, English-speaking women uh, in Florence was was a way for me to think about um, the kind of notion of, of, of belonging was my first set of questions when I was there. Um, what does it mean to live in a place for 40 years often and still feel like an outsider? Um, what does it mean to be married into an Italian family um, but not necessarily feel like one has a kind of a place in that, uh, in that kind of kinship system? So it was a really interesting kind of complex set of, of questions around alienation and belonging that sort of attracted me um, to that project. And Eli, what was the link for you between the rice bowl uh, and the uh, and getting into kind of infrastructural questions now is what kind of where you're you're more at I mean, I just want to make an observation quickly. It's interesting to talk to, you know, I think we're all in a sense of the same era of anthropologists. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the way in which kind of debates around globalization uh, and the kind of long-term effects of structures like aid or indig- the emergence of kind of the emergence of indigenous movements or the anti-globalization movements I think they've had a real, I mean, in in a sense, I think that era is really playing out in a kind of generation of anthropologists later, a kind of taking up of those themes in different ways. But I I kind of see that, I kind of sense that in, in, uh, and certainly in my trajectory, and it sounds like from the same in Catherine's Mm -hmm. as well. Um, The the kind of transit from the bowl of chicken soup uh, to um, infrastructure and housing was really about, I mean, the the real link for me was that... um, Subsequent to that study abroad program, I had gone back to do a small research project on an undergraduate grant, um, working further with some anti-dam activists that I had gotten in touch with again through that that same uh, international uh, education program. I spent about three weeks out living at this anti-dam protest village and uh, doing interviews and kind of just spending a lot of time doing nothing because it wasn't it was very remote and there wasn't always a whole lot going on. Um, save for a few punctuated kind of large protests. Um, and in the course of thinking through that data and um, kind of working towards a, a, an, an honors thesis, I just, uh, I, I began to think like this was a really important site for thinking about mutations and transformations in democracy, global politics, uh, and those questions kind of stuck with me after being an undergraduate. They seemed to be at the edge of what was happening in the world. And uh, these sorts of protest movements that I was interested in as an undergraduate uh, informed something that I, I still, I kind of had a, a, a set of questions around that I couldn't really answer through that short project. Um, when I went back to graduate school, I ended up having, um, just fortuitously, I don't. I had no master control over my choices. Uh, really, I ended up uh, locking in with uh, James Holston and Nancy Postero at uh, University of California, San Diego, who are both doing really interesting work on um, the emergence of citizenship movements and democracy in Latin America. Uh, Nancy working among uh, Guarani indigenous people in Bolivia, and uh, James working in kind of um, urban settlements in Sao Paulo, um, and I took those kinds of sites as a basis to really think about, well, what does democracy look like in Thailand? What does it mean to be a citizen? And where are the spaces in which one could even begin to investigate that? And so um, I had known about a few housing movements and those places, those housing movements were associated with um, Mm -hmm. settlements built along the railway tracks in this northeastern Thai city of Konken, where I did my dissertation research. And so I think between housing and citizenship and the railway, uh, a kind of, kind of the sense of infrastructure as, um, I think, uh, uh, Abdul Malik Simon calls infrastructure as an incitement to politics. Uh, I see that as a kind of setting in which, um, 
in which those kinds of questions around citizenship emerge in a really potent way. Again, things you don't plan. I happen to be there during a kind of massive, you know, kind of fomentation of democratic aspiration, uh, which really began in 2000, but um, extended well. I mean, it, it continues to extend despite uh, the kind of ongoing military rule in Thailand. This question about democracy was also something that was on everybody kind of everybody's lips across Thailand. So the convergence of infrastructure and housing and questions about citizenship became a site to really think about these transformations and democratic aspiration among the urban poor uh, in a way that has just been kind of tremendously revealing for me to think about, like, what does it mean to attempt to produce equality and how do we act on that and how do these different sites of disagreement around housing expose or reveal the ways in which... Um, Thai democracy as, as being debated in the kind of contemporary moment. Mm -hmm. This brings us to uh, a question that's, I guess, been a bit of a theme in the podcast lately, is thinking about how you, uh, as a early and kind of mid-career researcher, come up with second and third projects, right? Because uh, for anthropologists, there's a real commitment often to the first project, the first scene. But some people move on, some people need to move on to a whole new project, uh, or they seed new projects over time. And so I guess what I'm interested in is, uh, with Catherine, you went from cross-cultural marriage in Florence to British nuclear test veterans. Uh, was there a link there? Or was the link personal? Was it thematic? Because I can kind of see there's something conceptual around citizenship, belonging, biological citizenship. But or was it just something personal that you just happened to like branch between these two? There are there were multiple reasons, as there always are multiple yeah. reasons, um, and they fuse. I think the professional and the personal. Um, uh, thematically, I I think the two continuities are questions of citizenship and questions of proof. Um, so in my research on um, charitable um, migrant women in Florence, um, while I sort of initially started with questions of belonging and how they sort of articulate their place in Florentine society through their kind of good works, what became really evident was the need for them to assess and kind of find proof that their works were indeed socially impactful. Um, and that ranged from the very small interpersonal kind of interactions with charity recipients and finding out whether it had indeed helped someone to improve their life um, to the, all the gatekeeping that was required to ensure that their work was either complying with um, Florentine regulations or was, you know, um, having some meaningful social impact that they could then sort of um, show to um, their Italian um fellow uh, charity workers that they were you know they were making an impact that they had a kind of stake in the area which was part of their belonging but also you know the the kind of thorny questions of proof within charity are are, are really tricky um to know whether you are having a positive or a neutral or a negative impact um and according to whose criteria. Um, and those questions followed me through to my second project looking at uh, veterans of the British nuclear test. I looked at New Zealand and British veterans who um, believe they've been irradiated from their uh, exposure during the 1950s tests. Um, and that is all about questions of proof. How do you prove in a situation of uncertainty uh, that in, you indeed do deserve resources from the state? Um, and how do you prove that on multiple levels, medical, uh, bureaucratic, legal, um, social? Um, so I think those were the, the, the sort of conceptual threads and how does one define um, these, these kind of unusual forms of citizenship, whether through charity, whether through biological need, um, often on the sort of margins of broader um, concepts of citizenship. But on a personal level, there were two reasons. Um, one was that um, I got quite a lot of negative reaction from mainly older um, British anthropologists. I must say not in Cambridge itself where I did my PhD. Um, I was very supported by my advisor, Harry England, and the two other academics that um, read and, and kind of contributed to my project, which was Marilyn Strathern and, and James Laidlaw. But I remember sitting at high tea, uh, at high table. Uh, I was sitting at high table at, in, um, at Cambridge and, a, and another British academic who was there was asking the PhD students to go around and say what they were doing. And I told, described my project and he said, yes, but is that really anthropology? You know, and it was really uh, shocking to me that, that in, you know, in that, that would have been 2008, that that kind of attitude to, to looking at um, seemingly privileged uh, people in a Western setting was still considered 
to not be anthropology. Um, and and I think that that really shook me, actually. And in all honesty, as a young academic, um, a young female academic, I think, and that happened multiple times, this kind of questioning of whether this sort of looking, that I wasn't looking at um, the kind of suffering subject, as, as Joel Robbins has described it, um, that was not a real anthropology. And, and so I think at a deep psychological level, there was a little bit of turning towards something that would kind of would be regarded as really legitimate in my second project. And then the other reason is really practical, and I think it's important to mention... But it's still not a village ethnography. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that somehow would have that kind of immediate social, like, oh, that's very kind of socially necessary. And um, and I think that those are kind of issues anthropology still got to work through. But I think it's really important to also recognise and say this for fellow um, parents out there, that uh, when you choose your second project and you have a toddler... Um, and you require the support of your partner and your extended family to raise a child, that that shapes what sort of a project, the nature of your field site and the the kind of um, the duration, the way in which you organise the sort of duration of field trips in, in really significant ways. Um, and, and that was also really kind of part of that project was, was ensuring that it would be family-friendly for me to be able to do it in smaller chunks um, and smaller trips while being based here in New Zealand. And Eli, you've continued to work uh, in Thailand, where you did your PhD research. But how? Yeah, well, how do you approach this 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 uh, issue? I guess of uh, generating new, you know, keeping yourself interested. I guess is one thing, but and and generating new uh, research topics. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because on Monday, I'm actually, there's the reason that my office is filled with boxes at the moment, I'm, it's doubling as a storage unit, because on Monday, I'm leaving to go back to Thailand for a stretch of a relatively long stretch of field work for a project that I've been working on in fits and starts since 2014 on the anthropology, what I'm calling a kind of anthropology of concrete, and looking at how looking at the kind of invent, environmental histories and futures of, of a kind of, of the city in a kind of through the lens of that materiality. I'd, I'd been working with working with people doing home improvements, home upgrades, and I just become really interested in the role that materials played. Uh, well, first in in and I've, and I've written a little bit about this in in the way those materials played a role in the uh, expression uh, and exertion of a kind of political force, um, both in terms of remaking the house into a kind of site of belonging that could be seen as a legitimate thing that needed to be kept around versus being evicted, um, and as a kind of an expression of a kind of politics of, of fixity, saying, you know, we're building this thing to be permanent in a place so that the railway, at that, which is the landowner in the, in the case that I'm working on, couldn't evict the people that were living there. But uh, and in, the, in that attention to um, materials, I sort of began to feel like, what are these materials anyway? You know, I spent a lot of time either uh, helping mix, uh, mix cement. So you're a dab hand at mixing cement. No, I'm still bad at it. I'm uh, miserable at all of these things, but I, I was at least included in the process. <laughs> you have available labor. Yeah, with, with great tolerance, I was, I was allowed to, you know, uh, shovel sand and mix concrete and, you know, uh, spread it or at least haul it away when it was broken, um, you know, as a very low-level con- contributor into these projects. And I just became interested in what that means, you know, and, and roughly... Again, around the same time, um, there are these major floods in Bangkok in 2011. So I'm now working through this material. I'm working through all this ethnographic um, uh, data on material that's so rich with materials. And at the same time, I'm kind of keeping track of what's going on in Bangkok. And people are debating about um, these historic floods in 2011 and why they were so bad and what was the cause. And one of the things that, you know, one of the kind of conversations that emerges is this debate around the materiality of the city. What are we doing with all this concrete infill roads? Uh, what happened when we paved over the canals and turned them into streets? Uh, what is unchecked development look like now? And what's it going to look like in the future in, in an era in which, uh, you know, of, of rising sea levels and changing weather conditions in a city like Bangkok, which is highly vulnerable to climate change. And the longer I thought about it, the more interesting concrete and cement became, not because they're, uh, because they're so ignored, under, under-examined or under-thought about, and yet so central to uh, the production of urban life in the contemporary moment. 
in a, at a lot of different levels from the level of the homeowner homeowners that I was working with, but also up to these major infrastructural projects, high speed rail, uh, massive real estate development. So it was a kind of a passageway into that to thinking about what uh, urban life in an era of climate change looks like, and how people are uh, addressing that and the kinds of material engagements people have with the environment in the city. And then also a kind of counter imaginary that's emerged around uh, cities beyond cement or post uh, post concrete cities that encourage or engage with flooding in different ways. And all of these things were kind of happening in Thailand and have been an ongoing question since 2011. And so for me, again, it was just a matter of attention to the ways those kinds of the kinds of loose ends of the first project folded into a really large and important debate that uh, I think underscores the second project that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So the two of you are involved in a new an exciting uh, journal project called Commenting Ethnography. And I thought a good place to start in kind of introducing this to uh, people would just be to kind of outline what you see as the major issues with academic journals today. Because I think for the uninitiated, journals are a kind of mysterious world until you start grappling with them for a few years and trying to publish in them. Even then, they remain opaque. And... uh, so what what are the kind of what were some of the motivating forces between wanting to have your own journal rather than join the existing troupe? Yeah, I think it was a um, it was an experiment. It was wanting to to experiment in what we saw as quite an exciting kind of new infrastructure um, of open access and the you know the way that journals currently work, the sort of majority of the high prestige journals upon which people's careers are built and made and depend, um, you know, are tied up with these very complicated um, kind of profit motives that don't actually often um, benefit, um, uh, they can benefit sort of individual uh, researchers who publish in them, but but aren't necessarily, require a, a whole lot of unpaid academic labour. Um, and we thought, well... If it's going to be built on unpaid academic labour, then it should at least be available. Um, and I think um, it was a desire to experiment with the, with different ways. I'm not trying to solve the problem, but to offer one um, example of quite a modest project of trying things out in, a, in an experiment, iterative way. And so the journal... Um, both in its academic focus and its infrastructural kind of ethos, focuses on this experimenting. Um, and we went in not knowing a huge amount about how <laughs> to Almost do this. Nothing, I think, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Probably the best way to go um, in. And so I think there was some um, sort of healthy naivete in, in going into this um, as we hatched this up um, and kind of utopian, utopian thinking around it, um, which I think saw us through in a really useful way. Um, I think if we'd known kind of the complexity of it, we might not have embarked on it in quite the same way. But we um, it's been a, a really thoroughly enjoyable uh, project in working together because we've had to be really conscious of thinking about what the ethics are of what we're doing and, and enacting them and how we uh, do all the backroom journal stuff as well as what we put out into the public. Um, so part of it was sitting down and thinking, well, how do we want to run this as four as a collective? So we've got an editorial collective of, um, of four scholars, Eli, myself, and Nayantara Sheeran Appleton, and Lorena Gibson, who are both here at Victoria as well. Um, and, you know... It, uh, all the th- three of the Lorena, myself, and, and Nyan all have uh, young kids, and so that was actually quite a big thing. How do we do this in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't require the kind of burnout that ju- journal editing normally generates? And it usually requires an enormous amount of labour for those big prestige journals around the world. Um, how might that we sort of model a way of doing this that enables kind of people with everyday commitments to be involved in this space? Um, so that's been part of the the sort of journey and trying to work that out all together. Um, and then the other thing was wanting to create more of a space, I think, more of a space for some of the kind of more experimental 
edges of ethnography. Um, and Eli, you might want to talk a bit more about this too. But I mean, there's some great journals already doing this, um, particularly uh, journals like uh, Anthropology and Humanism and Cultural Anthropology is doing some great things too. Um, and we wanted to just add to that space um, of people that are working in, in kind of on the edges of ethnography and other genres of, of writing and doing ethnography so that we can kind of push those boundaries out um, in ways that are um, provocative and... Um, and challenge some really kind of deep-seated visions of what knowledge is and who gets included in its production. And also, um, you know, the because we aren't aiming to be, we, we thought we're not, we're, we're just going to produce a small journal that does its thing here mm. and is not trying to compete with American Ethnologist or um, JRAI or that is trying to um, kind of carve out a corner, a kind of plucky, uh, unusual corner here in the Antipodes. And that gave us a lot of, lot of freedom, didn't it, to think about how we might do peer review, how we might um, uh, kind of sort of generate the whole kind of infrastructure of, of, of it all. Um, would you kind of add to that maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's, a pro, it's just a profoundly experimental space for us to try and imagine what it is now that you can create a journal uh, you know, so, I mean, relatively easily through the open journal system that we use, it's really not that hard. I mean, it takes a lot of labor and attention to things like, uh, m you know, making sure that it's formatted right and making sure that it's all in order. I mean, that's all a lot of work. But in general, you can produce something and, dis and distribute it relatively easy. Just, you know, I think there's all of these different possibilities that are available for uh as, as, as uh, bereft of meaning as it seems, content generation. But, you know, and I think that's what uh, on some level we do is produce intellectual content. So it's nice to experiment with one of those now and also to experiment with one that's capacious enough to sort of try to account for what it is, what uh, modern scholarship looks like, um, you know, in a sense to include graphic uh, you know, in the upcoming issue, we have a, um, a, gra a little bit of a graphic novel. We have... Um, uh, you know, we have, uh, I think we'll be even publishing a video uh, that will be, you know, won't be a print source, but it'll be a video of a conversation that's taking place somewhere else. So, you know, it's, it's it, the, the journal format has enough capacity to in, include all kinds of things that were kind of left out before um, at a kind of uh, genre level uh, from a regular kind of mainstream journal. Um, so I think that was a kind of a, it, itself, it's a, it, its own kind of experiment. Um, and I think for me that that comes back to like really coming out of my, um, coming out of my graduate education and wanting to, uh, I think to open up the possibilities for um, play, you know, ethnography as a kind of ludic practice that, that involves some fun, some engagement, some stretching of ideas and boundaries. And that the discipline has always been Anthropology as a discipline has always been attractive to me because it always seemed uh, roomy enough to handle some of that. Um, and so I thought it would be, you know, I think in terms of developing a, a kind of journal space, I wanted to, I, you know, I think we're keen to think about how to create a journal that reflects that spirit as opposed to reflecting some other, uh, you know, kind of the other kind of norms uh, and values that we see kind of circulating through the journal ecosystem. Yeah, I was thinking about that after reading the introduction to the first issue, uh, where you raise uh, all kinds of uh, great issues around uh, the politics of citational practice, the inequities of peer review, I'm actually quoting here, uh, and the geopolitics of who gets included in the networks of prestigious journals, there's so much about the field that people have to acculturate through by not and that you won't find in anthropology journals like how these networks of power work, uh, which is so important to actually being in the field of anthropology, is not described anywhere. It's, to, you know, you have to, you have, you're acculturated into it by going to those places or being in those worlds and going, oh, that's how it works. The editors of these big journals are always attached to big, rich universities because they're actually subsidizing them in various ways. You don't, you, you, how would you find that out by reading anthropology journals? You wouldn't. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's worth stating, it's a, you know, it's maybe a slightly unpopular thing to say, but let's say it, that the, you know, the vast majority of the journals that generate prestige um, are in America, 
in North America, mainly in the US, as well as the UK and some in Europe. I mean, that's a really narrow geographic range. Um, and so if you need to be socialized in those worlds to know sort of how to submit and kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of what the genre is for those journals, perform. exactly, perform perform the kind of particular way of, of doing um, academic um, work and of academic thought, then, then, you know, then they become, I think, quite parochial, actually, in how that they, they sort of foster intellectual thought. So I do think they're actually... And I will I will say this fairly firmly. I think there needs to be a fairly radical re a kind of um, decentering of the journal infrastructure on a global scale, particularly into the south. Now, obviously, in New Zealand, we're a country with a with a degree of wealth, so this is still not a radical move. Um, but it is it is it is a step. Um, and I think um, one thing that I feel strongly about too is. I think there's been a huge professionalisation of the journal um, scene in the sense that they look and feel really slick. And because of that, they require quite a huge infrastructure to produce them. And I would actually argue we need to move back somewhat to to kind of rougher versions of, uh, of a kind of more homemade quality of academic uh, work that doesn't have this kind of look of neoliberal kind of commercial publishing. Um, you know, not only does a huge amount of money have to be put in to produce that kind of degree of, of publishing, but, it, but it, you know, it, it also then kind of takes it out of the realm of the homemade experimental academic um, conversations that I think, um, you know, and, and the libraries provide a really interesting and unique infrastructure that we could be utilising much more. University libraries, if the same amount of money that was going into paying private for-profit publishing firms to publish academic journals was put into libraries to provide the editorial staff, the you know production staff, and to kind of rehouse journals back in universities with the infrastructures of the university libraries. That would be a kind of radical um, move towards open access that I think would be really great. I mean, not to mention the kind of, sub I don't, I think it's the, the term of subvention for the open access extra subvention where you're paying an additional whatever $2,500 per article yeah I mean it just seems insane to say that this this is money that universities should be spending especially I mean in 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 working here the universities are profoundly state institutions still in many ways and the fact that the state should be subsidizing private com companies essentially is uh, is insane frankly uh, especially when we can sort of take some of that infrastructure um, on, we can do some of that work ourselves if we recognize it. And I think uh, I'm really inspired by the by the kind of vision of thinking about university libraries as publishing houses, uh, as sort of resources to help people manage some of this new information, to understand how archiving works, and to help us to put together, um, you know, just the kinds of light interaction we've had with our library here at uh, Victoria has been enormously helpful in terms of raising questions about what it is to produce a journal and what are the what are the questions about knowledge, the durability of knowledge, and how it gets archived that we need to be thinking about. Uh, moving ahead. Um, that said, I think it's also important to note that, like, starting out a journal is not. It wasn't. It wasn't necessarily uh, easy in terms of developing content. People don't. People may or may not be reluctant to submit to it because it is a kind of uh, off-center, off-kilter kind of choice for your work. You know, no, no one, no metrics, uh, no metrics-focused um, academic is going to be thinking like, well, this is really where I need to publish my work to get, uh, to get it, to get uh, kind of high metrics rankings. But um, so our networks still matter, you know, largely one of the things that we've, we've been doing is, I mean, we've had a, ex a number of external submissions, but frankly, we still end up having, you know, talking to friends, these are conversations that we've been having with academic colleagues and friends. And that's how we've produced initial, the initial content across some of the issues is to say like, Hey, you're doing really interesting work on, uh, you know, on, on X topic. Why don't you, is there something you might submit to us for that? Is there something, you know, mm -hmm. and those kinds of, those kinds of networks still, I think, I think they still form a foundation of what we're doing. And so in order to, to be as inclusive as possible, one of the important things we've been, the, sort of the next year um, we want to work on is extending the editorial board 
um, particularly into um, particularly sort of Southern Africa, into the Pacific and into South America, um, to 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 broaden that network so that those conversations that travel about this question of commoning ethnography, um, you know, it travels much further than our own networks. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things that uh, frustrates me, frankly, when I'm asked to peer review manuscripts, for example, from the US, um, is the way in which the, the sort of citations tend to be pulled almost entirely kind of from US scholarship. And often that's the kind of first page of my report will be, you know, there are all these people working around the world on this topic. Please read them. And, you know, or, or if you've read them, you know, think seriously about how they might be, you know, an interesting dialogue with the kind of conversations that are happening at home. Um, and so there, there is a, a kind of um, resistance to sort of some of those very uh, deeply grooved networks that we're working from. But in a um, kind of self-reflexive way of making sure we don't, rep you know, well, of trying not to replicate mm. uh, our own world in the process because, you know, this is, you know, we've, we've seen that with sort of new journals that have emerged in anthropology is that they... Not, not naming no, not naming any names. Um, but the, 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 they, you know, they set out to kind of, in an iconoclastic kind of way um, and, and then often, you know, um, sort of reorient a kind of new version of privilege, and um, it's always it's always the risk. Um, and um, so this this kind of drive to extend out our editorial board um, in a far more sort of geographically diverse and and thinking not just in terms of adding some names, because there was an initial thought we'll we'll do this we'll add some people, and then we thought, hang on, what does it mean to add people to, to an editorial board? What does it mean to meaningfully build relationships with them? Let's think slowly about what that means, so that this is not just an exercise in displaying diversity. And and so the kind of conversations we've been having, are like how do we kind of meaningfully build dialogue in particularly the, the the sort of southern hemisphere between these different kind of blocks of academic network and do so slowly and carefully so that it, it, it kind of can last or endure in some sort of way. Do you have any hot tips for people who are contemplating, you know, it's just emerging in their brain, listening to this, maybe I'll start a journal or maybe I'll look into this. Like what are, the, what are some of the kind of main uh, things you would tell them about? I think the I mean, for me the other part just to kind of step back for a minute one of the other things I think that's that's worth coming bringing into focus is that the question of commenting ethnography or uh, is that it, that it raises which we regard as a kind of open ended question is this question of inclusion and boundaries and that was a question that I think emerged as an open question out of conversations we've been having here in New Zealand in Aotearoa New Zealand about sharing and about the kinds of ideas of sharing space and the kinds of specificities of what anthropology is as a field here versus in the context of the U.S. where I was educated or in the U.K. Uh, and what are the questions that speak to the kind of contemporary debates that are going on here? And those questions around boundaries, I think, are fundamental. That question of boundary making is fundamental here. In, in, a, in a lot of different ways, and who gets included and what the kinds of lines of sharing are. To finally wind my way back to your initial question, like the tip is, I, I think the thing is to think about well, what is the question that matters? What's a question that's open enough that needs sustained thinking around? And what are the kinds of ways in which a journal can emerge that addresses those questions from a unique angle? In some sense, one of the things we were interested in is common practice, to create a common practice amongst us as scholars here at Victoria, and also to generate, I think, a set of a space for common discussion uh, in the community of anthropologists here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and then also to think uh, beyond that about, to enable people to think beyond that in terms of thinking about what are the boundaries that generate and, and sustain scholarship elsewhere. Mm. And you can see that, I mean, that was one of the first things I noticed is the in the, the strategic use of the title, that it's not commoning ethnography Aotearoa, it's not commoning anthropology, it's commoning ethnography, which is this thing that anthropologists uh, in many contexts may think is their, theirs exclusively. You go out in the world, Actually, there's a lot of people, geographers, cultural studies people, media studies people who have something that they call ethnography as well, which is not necessarily put into dialogue, um, especially in some of those kind of places like the US and the UK, it seems to me. Yeah, I'll answer that. But let me just go back to hot tips, because yeah. in my ever pragmatic way, mm -hmm. one of my tips would be that small is beautiful. Mm 
um, that make a journal that's as big as you can do. And that, you know, we've seen it recently with journals like um, How or How Ho, as we, we call it, because we never know what to, how to pronounce it, uh, that, you know, that grew very, very quickly. Um, and it kind of outgrew its kind of infrastructural um, possibilities are kind of based on volunteer labour and, and then there was sort of trouble based on that. And that, you know, that I think a good diverse journal field will have a lot of quite sort of small scale journals that are doable, not just doable, that are kind of pleasurable to do because of their scale. And that as the networks grow, they can organically scale up. But that this kind of vision that a journal should be this size or uh, produce this many times a year, which has become a kind of professional gold standard, I think we need to really push back against some of these kind of entrenched visions of of publishing should be ours, you know, to develop and experiment with as 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 we choose. And by ours, I think that there's a question mark after that, like who who is us? And you know, the people that are invested. And so the other that kind of brings me to my other um, tip, which would be to ask who benefits. I think that's the crucial question to ask with any publishing project because too often publishing projects or academic collaborations or network are premised upon building the careers of people that are already in positions of, of reasonable um, privilege. And so part of the conversation that, and I think, that, you know, putting commenting in the title is to always remind us, you know, of what is common, who's in common with who, you know, who's, who's included and excluded. And I think we can be far more radical in who we include on editorial boards, what editorship looks like you know um, the sorts of people we invite and include into not just publishing but conversations and critique and um, replies to to publications Um, so I think I I would push for people to just be as kind of creatively wide-ranging in 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 thinking about what is possible um, and opening up journal publishing again Um, and you know of course there are a whole lot of other media now out there and I think perhaps that the boundaries between the the sort of the professional journal voice versus social media needs to completely kind of dissolve and 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 we're seeing that already um, and with some journals it's the place of ethnography in New Zealand is fascinating because the relationship between anyone who's read um, indigenizing methodology by Linda Tui-Wise-Smith knows that the relationship between Māori scholarship and anthropology is a fraught one, um, as she outlines, you know, um, very well in that book. And what's really interesting is there is a, a huge uh, ethnography network in New Zealand that has a conference, often in Hamilton, um, each year that anthropology is actually not very prominent in. And I know that um, that uh, in the past there's been a little bit of resistance about why is this happening outside of anthropology. Um, so there's a kind of sense of claiming that. But in fact, ethnography is a, is a kind of method that is very much in circulation in New Zealand outside of anthropology. We do not claim it as something that kind of is our heart or, or is our own. That historical relationship between Māori scholars and Māori communities and anthropology, you know, Eli mentioned this issue. Um, and I, just to say a little more on that, I think it that is in many ways at the heart of the conversations that drove this, that anthropology in the 80s basically vacated the space of scholarship um, with or on Māori for very good reasons because Māori communities were were pushing back against a history of exploitative research. Um, and the response from anthropology was sort of decades of um, what um, Mark, Martin Tollich has described as Pākehā paralysis, the idea that it's too hard emotionally, uh, it's too hard ethically, so we just don't touch it. And it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out to... Um, to not actually have robust conversations with Māori anthropologists, of which there are many, and with Māori scholars about the place of anthropology and the changes that are required um, and the ways in which we can be far more inclusive um, and work in partnership with. And so that, again, is all part of the ongoing dialogue in our programme of of anthropology here, but also with our association nationally, and um, the journal is a kind of small part of that. yeah, I think that it's. I think that you can't really overstate the the somewhat marginal quality of the social sciences, you know, in the contemporary university, in the contemporary academy, you know. And one of the really big interests for me in terms of thinking about ethnography begins back as a when I was a graduate student and thinking about like what is the role of the social sciences if this is important knowledge and this is an important means of producing knowledge, then. Why is ethnography and why are the social sciences and, and the humanities, for that matter, so seemingly marginal to contemporary political uh, and contemporary debate? Uh, and, I, and, I, and this was coming in for me out of 
being at the University of California and at the University of California campus in San Diego, which has a very large uh, engineering school, a very large natural science school, uh, physics, you know, as a are hugely important, but I also feeling like there's an incredible set of researchers working in ethnographic researchers in communications in in history and, you know, in STS, and all of those areas seem to be producing knowledge that matters a great deal. And so one of the things I became interested in was thinking about the kind of ethnic or the interdisciplinary boundaries of, of ethnographic knowledge and the ways in which by repositioning or by thinking about method, we could generate a new conversation that actually was kind of outside of the disciplinary silos that we all tend to operate and in fact publish in. I was involved in some interdisciplinary collaborations when I was in California, and I was also keen to think about what that, how that can build relationships. When I arrived here, I was thinking, interested in thinking about how we can use ethnography to kind of build relationships across a range of social sciences. And that's something that, you know, ultimately I'm still very, very interested in. And I think it also for, functions in an important sense as a legitimizing factor for that form of knowledge production. You know, increasingly, we, we basically see that big data seems to be getting increasingly large sort of footprint or dominance over what real knowledge is. And so how do you take ethnography and sort of assert its legitimacy and its parity with these other forms of knowledge production? I think it's a hugely important question for us, not only for us as scholars in terms of putting our work out into a public sphere, but also in terms of thinking about our students and what is it that they leave an anthropology degree with? Kim, For Kim Fortune always calls it kind of a hermeneutic discipline, right? The kind of interpretive mode of approaching the world. You know, I think that the, the more we work to create, to demonstrate the legitimacy of that form of knowledge and its importance, its relevance, the better. Yeah, in an earlier episode uh, of this podcast, we spoke to uh, Hugh Gustafson from uh, George Washington University, and he made the point at the end that his advice to young PhD students these days is don't let anybody tell you what it is that you do. If you think it's anthropology, then it's anthropology. So on that inspiring note, hopefully, um, thank you so much for joining us uh, in a conversation in anthropology at Deakin. It's been my pleasure to uh, be speaking today to uh, Eli Alanoff and Catherine Trundle. I hope you all go and uh, look up Commenting Ethnography. If you're not already uh, subscribers uh, or avid readers, uh, get amongst it. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. In this episode, we've been speaking to Dr. Catherine Trundle and Dr. Eli Alanoff. If you'd like to know more about Catherine's work, you can find her online. She has a website, catherinetrundle.com, and she's also on Twitter, at catherinetrund1. Eli is more elusive. You can look him up on your favorite search engine, Eli Alanoff. And you can also find out more about commenting ethnography and, hey, even read the uh, latest issue at ojs.victoria.ac.nz ce. And if you read the latest issue, you might just find a transcript of one of our conversations in anthropology at Deakin, uh, which is produced by me, David Giles and Timothy Neal, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at DHBorderGiles, and Tim is at TDNeal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs>